Well, hey, everyone, Lisa Anderson here with you. Welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Uh, As I often like to do later on for our inbox, we have a listener who feels like her mental health issues could be a potential problem in future dating relationships. And she's wondering, well, when will I even know if I'm ready to handle a relationship emotionally? So fortunately, one of our counselors is going to weigh in. And then for our culture segment, Pastor David Marvin, uh, he's in charge of the porch at Watermark Church, is uh, going to join us to discuss a new book that he has written about why we are so anxious and what we can do about it. So very encouraging word with him. This is going to be part one, so stay tuned. Well, here we are for our roundtable, and we thought it would be fun to talk about favorite games to play with friends. And before we started taping, we were talking about the quote unquote game night that some people may or may not know. Like I just, we think it's totally assumptive, like, hey, game night. But some people are like, what is that? And it can get awkward. And some people are super competitive and other people aren't. And some people want to come to game night and then they don't want to play games. They just want to talk and that irritates other people. (laughs) And so, you know, pick your poison. It's all crazy. So fortunately, we have got Kristen, Austin, and Laura here with us. So welcome, y'all. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Very good to have you. Okay, now I have some pretty, I was telling you, kind of preparing you, that I have some pretty um, strong opinions on types of games and what games are good and what aren't. So I will have my opinions about these. So I would love to start off, though, by talking about like what, when you guys think of playing games, like what does this look like? What did it look like for you growing up? What about now? Have you taken some of your childhood favorites into games that you play now? Um, where are you in the game? Where are you in the game spectrum? Who wants to start? Well, I can start. Um, I probably, when someone says mentions games or like, oh, do you play any games? I think of playing uh, games with my grandmother because she loves playing games and she would always say like, ah, no one ever plays games with me until like until you guys get here. So we just do that as a way to show her that we we love her. Uh, so we would play, yeah, so we would play games like skip bow or sequence. And then eventually I got smart enough to try and learn how to play dominoes like 42 or something. And, and so now they, they wrangled me into that. Okay. <laughs> awesome. How about you, Kristen? Growing up, we just played a lot of monopoly oh, my and they, word. we were homeschooled <laughs> and the games would last for hours and days. And so it would get to the point where my mom would say that monopoly game has been up there for a week. <laughs> go finish it or clean it up <gasps> oh no and scramble up the stairs and finish the game so when I think of games growing up all I think about is week-long Monopoly <laughs> with my wow. siblings so. and Monopoly really seems to be a love it or hate it there are people who are diehard mm-hmm. fans maybe because of nostalgia and other people are like if this game is ever in my home <laughs> I will burn it okay all right Laura yeah I would say we played a lot of different types of games we play like traditional card games we played ones that are like kind of for the region that I'm from. It's called Pitch, which not everyone knows about it. But um, there's also, we also played Monopoly or Apples to Apples. You know, we basically ran the spectrum of different stuff that we would play. So okay. I think of a lot of different things. It kind of like, wait, what do you mean by games? It's kind of my conversation because are you going like mm. board games? Are you going card games? Are you mixing it up? So yeah, 
Okay. I know when I was a kid, I played a lot of the traditional like kid board games like Candyland. Oh, yeah. There was mm-hmm. one called Uncle Wiggly. Did anyone play that? That's like old school, mm-hmm. man. Okay. Um, <laughs> life. Like, why yeah. does anyone want to play life? You're living life now in your 20s and you're like, I did not need to play this game. That is very depressing. But we played that. And then it was all like, how many kids do you have in your car? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so crazy. I don't even know. As an adult, I have much more gotten into, like, party games. Mm -hmm. Oh, I should say, too, that we also could not play, like, traditional cards because my parents were like, those are not good. Um, They're totally associated with gambling. So those were off the table. So as an adult, not going to lie, I've learned some of those card games, like maybe spades, hearts, poker. Mm -hmm. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Um, All in good fun, people. But that to say, I definitely am a fan of the party game because I love like get to know you games. I love, Mm. you know, large group stuff and everything. So that makes it makes it kind of fun, too. So now what does it look like? Um, Obviously, some of those games we're talking about, you know, was like as families or as kids and they're kind of just like four people or whatever. But if you have a game night, what does that generally entail? Like if it's going to be successful, what does it have to have? I know you, Austin and Kristen, you guys were just part of a game night. So tell us how that went down. Yeah, we did. Our our friend Annie, uh, who's also our, our co-worker, just somehow found a ton of the young adults here at Focus and we had a game night at her house. So everyone brought their favorite game and then uh, I cooked some some chili and then we ate and played games and just hung out. It was really chill. Got into different groups and um, it was really interesting, the different groups and learning new games. Okay. Uh, so one game that they had was called Red Flags <laughs> and that that one was really funny that our, pre- <laughs> our friend Paige brought. It's mm-hmm. where someone gives you two characteristics of a person that you might be willing to date. So they're a millionaire or they have a beachside house or something. And then the person to your right gives you a red flag. So like you pull up the red flag and it's like they only talk about their mom or something like that. Oh, And so you judge who you would actually want to date given all the red flags. So that was really, really fun. Just so their get... pros are like they, they are a millionaire and they own a beach house, but they exactly. also talk about their mom too much and you have to decide, is that too you have much? You to decide if that's worth it. But everybody at the table has a set. And so you choose one of the people at the table that you want to date or marry, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know. Oh, so, wow. like apples to apples. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like, like apples, apples to apples. apples. Yeah. Okay. It's okay. really funny. Okay. <laughs> I feel like this should be happening in real life too. <laughs> right, right. It's kind of like, how do we take this into real life? Let's Some put life real situations down here and see what should be happening. Hmm. Maybe we'll make the boundless version of that at some point. Mm. <laughs> we'll be like red flags. Intentionality uh, will be the other positives. I don't know. Oh, that sounds fun. Okay, so good. But you guys played like, so if everyone brought a game, like what do you, did you get to sample more than one game or how'd this go? Because you don't have like the whole night. Yeah, we did not play every game that was brought, but we played Red Flags, Exploding Kittens, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Uno, of course, a classic. I think we played Mm -hmm. some code names. Okay. Yes. And so we just played a few different games. So not everybody's game got played, but there were enough people that there were also multiple groups of people playing games okay that's good not uh not gonna lie and i talked to you about how i have strong opinions on games my a member of my family gave me exploding kittens one christmas we played one round with my family (laughs) no one knew what even was going on (laughs) 
<laughs> I attempted to play it one other time, and then I just sold it on Facebook Marketplace. Oh. It was it was gone. <laughs> Maybe I didn't give it enough of a chance, but I'm like, this is too random and weird. I can't deal with it. Mm. No, yeah. not going there. So, yeah, I would say for me, it is. It depends on the group or the size of the group for mm-hmm. sure. Because mm-hmm. I definitely have the like strategy friends of like we're gonna play Dominion, which is a deck building game. We're gonna play Ticket to Ride, that genre. But then I also have the let's play Fishbowl or Catchphrase mm-hmm. or yeah. okay. a lot more relaxed. So and but I think Austin he brought up food that is like essential to any game night oh, is yeah. the food. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure we put that in there. Well, that's very true. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully. Hopefully food. But then you have to be, then there are like control freaks that are like, mm-hmm. don't be getting like cheese sauce on my cards in my <laughs> game. And people get all crazy about that. But maybe that's just me. Okay. Let's talk about just some straight up like favorite games. Like what games have you found that most people tend to like playing? I need no one to say Settlers of Catan. (laughs) These strategy games that people are like way into. But if you do, if you have found that you have a hardcore group for Settlers, then please do say it because there has to be, you know, affinity for that in some way. But what would you say are some of the ones that really you've had the most success with in game nights? I think personally, game nights are about the community and getting to know people and uh, so I love games like Catchphrase or um, I guess really every game you can learn something different about someone. Mm-hmm. So if you play like Spicy Uno, mm-hmm. you might figure out how someone acts if they're competitive. Um, and then l- with your family, if you play Monopoly, you might learn how they handle conflict. But sometimes it's not probably not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I I love the games that bring out different parts of people's personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I think Jesus would be all in on game nights, like playing with, <laughs> playing with Nicodemus. And then just because you, you get to learn people, and I, I can't remember exactly where I've heard this, but the quote is, uh, you can't be fully loved unless you're fully known. And so um, playing games is a fun way to get to know people and maybe help you love them better. Yeah, that's good. And I like it because there's just something for everyone and there's mm-hmm. a way to include everyone and you don't have to. I mean, there are games where you don't need skills, you know, where where there are no wrong answers. And I think that's just helpful as well to, you know, to make people feel included is so big on that front. So, OK, what are some other good good ones? Um, my family really loves this game called Hand and Foot, mm-hmm. which everybody responds, that's a disease. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> but it's it's a pretty extensive game so you sit around and play for a really long time there's four rounds to it and each round has two rounds kind of anyways it's a really fun game but every person I've met who plays that game plays a different version Mm -hmm. so I don't know I just find it really fun it's what my family always plays my parents have invented a new version because they got bored with the version that we learned because they played it so much so I don't know that's like one of my favorite games right now because it reminds me of home Mm. and it's it doesn't take a lot of your brain to play Mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to learn so i just really like it it's long very fun yeah i'm gonna be honest i'm extremely competitive and uh, (laughs) i've grown a lot god's grace has definitely definitely (laughs) been a big part of my life because uh uh, unlike austin i'm like whoa 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 if we're gonna play the game we're gonna play the game i don't care about your grandma well we're gonna (laughs) Uh (laughs) like your your turn is taking 20 minutes when because you're listening to that person but like i know that i'm about to win if i do this so can we no but i definitely have had to come down so like sometimes people 
Actually, I literally had a conversation today with somebody who was like, yeah, the first time I met Laura, she yelled at me because we were playing Dutch Blitz and she played it a different way than I do. And I was like, oh my word. Okay, well, but I also, I did apologize. Don't worry. That time and again today. So I think we're on the same page, but she was joking. She was, but I can be very competitive. So I have to know which games I can play with which people. Mm -hmm. If I'm like, so (laughs) games are very serious, but a game that I really enjoy, I mentioned it earlier, is Dominion, which is a deck building game, but every game can be different because you can, there are probably at least eight different expansion packs that go in it. And so you buy different cards and different cards have different abilities. So like this one helps you buy more cards or this one gives you more action cards. It's complicated right now, but once you play it, it makes a lot more sense. But that one, you kind of have to be thinking, but it's also can be super fun because each game is different even though it's the same game so i really like that adventure that spice Mm. that it switches it up while it's the same Mm. game because you use different cards because you can only use 10 of the cards at once so okay interesting i have made a foray into several strategy games mostly because um james who used to work for boundless is way into those and tried to introduce me to a couple of them also, my good friend Juliana had gotten a couple from her friends, and they were like, uh, if anyone's played like Lost Cities mm-hmm. and some of those. Yeah. Okay. But again, it's like the minute something comes out and there's anything like medieval about it or anything, I'm just like, I need to tap out because I know it's <laughs> going to turn into some weird kingdom thing and like building. And I just have PTSD from like family playing risk and stuff Mm. when i was younger and i'm just like what is going on (laughs) this is like the world we're living in i don't need more like drama about world powers (laughs) and stuff like that okay so anyway i will say by far and i might have said this before on the show my favorite game ever is a game called loaded questions which i love because it too is a very great get to know you game and a good like community building game so the premise of the game is you're given a bunch of random questions A person asks the question, everyone answers the same question, and then the person whose turn it is has to guess who said what. Mm -hmm. And so you actually, so this is where, (laughs) Laura, I have an affinity for your strict rules because I also am a let's all follow the rules person (laughs) and play this game the right way. So my, again, I have a friend who tries to interject with like, let's do it like in a really funny way where we all just like make up stuff that's not true about ourselves. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You come up with your own game where you're going to do that. This is about like, you have to answer honestly, but you still don't want to be found out, you know? So that makes it all tricky. Um, And then you get just really wild answers and learn things about people that I think is is really fun so you can play it with extended family you can play it with friends and it just again it's one that everyone can win at because there are no wrong answers and it just kind of is a is a fun crowd pleaser I would say in that sense so um all right well let's talk about like making one of the you know making a fun game night happen in a sense we already talked about food we talked about a variety of games how do you guys even determine well clearly for the game night austin and Kristen, you were talking about you did it with coworkers. how do you determine like if you're going to invite people from different spheres of your life how do you do that successfully because you know i i've actually done that before it's been very entertaining because i have maybe some of my church friends there then i have my neighbors there my neighbors are dropping f-bombs um, my church people are just praying for them i mean it's like it can get very interesting and very salty i guess but that's makes it good too so but what do, what about you guys how do you make it successful with a bunch of different types of people 
That's really interesting because I tend to think for, I guess I'm a little hypocritical in this way, but I love the games where you get to know people, but also sometimes game nights can be really good if you already have some sort of prior relationship. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you're mixing groups, it would be really fun if maybe a couple people from different groups already had some connections. Right. You'd be like, oh, like I met her at Focus and those are her Focus friends or something like that. I think that would really help. And that way you're kind of unifying different groups and, but without people feeling totally left out. Mm Mm-hmm. I think part of that comes from having different games as an option, right? If you're like, okay, I'm going to get a, a group together, different people. I've usually been on the receiving end of this, and I've I've had a blast of like, oh, I've never met you before, but mm-hmm. I'm going to sit down. Those are those decisions where I have to say, okay, it doesn't matter if I'm win. I need to be kind, right? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> again, <laughs> <wow>. yourself ahead of time. Yeah, but just being willing to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring different groups together, and also being cognizant of how many people to invite, because it's like, well, if I have. 75 people in my house that don't know each other mm-hmm. it's going to be pretty awkward but yeah. but being willing to say oh i think these people would get along really well and i've benefited from that and i've built relationships through those types okay. of situations good okay i think even just sharing telling people who's coming like we're gonna have a game night i've invited some people from work mm-hmm. and from church and like this random lady that i met at this place too so mm-hmm. she's gonna come so then if everybody knows oh it's not just gonna be people I know then I think Mm -hmm. everybody's easier it's easier to walk into that situation and play games with a bunch of strangers because you know they're going to be strangers at least Mm -hmm. half of them you know so I think telling people otherwise it might feel like you just got me here to meet people you know I'm an introvert how dare you right I was (laughs) kind of going to bring up something similar with some friends who may have social anxiety it can be Mm -hmm. really helpful to to prep them of like these are the the people that are going to be here. These are how many people are going to come. Are you? Do you want to come? Like we'd love to have you here. Yeah. And I'll I can be with you however long you want. Yeah. Um. But just, that is a conscientious way to invite people to an event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. It's also good, I think, sometimes too, especially if you're the one organizing it. Maybe split up the extroverts a little bit, so there's not like a big mm-hmm. dominating crowd of people mm-hmm. that want to talk all the time, and you can kind of seed that with some folks. Um, I've also been to game nights where they're big enough that a, a number of games are going at once and you can mm-hmm. choose which one you want to join, which is also pretty fun. I've even done that. Um, like we did a New Year's Eve party at my church one time where they did that. And that was really a lot of fun. Um, okay. In our last couple of minutes here, let's just talk. We've talked about favorite games and kind of like, you know, affinities for certain types of games and stuff like that. And of course I always have to throw out ones that I don't like as well. So I would like to give everyone the opportunity to answer what, as you recommend, as we go out of this segment, what's a game that everyone should try So it could be one that's just a favorite or one that you feel like most people would like if they just gave it a chance. So something everyone should try. So not necessarily, you know, your number one. Um, And then what is just a game that you have tried to play many times, but you just cannot get into it? And you're just like, Mm -hmm. people, please, for a future game night, do not bring this game. Mm -hmm. What would you say it is? I have an answer that kind of mixes both. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love code names okay but i'm also very bad at really code bad. names okay yeah so i we played uh with kristen and a group of friends at a different game night and uh the, at, by the end of the night my partner would be like yeah austin you are the weakest link yeah. <laughs> 
Because uh-huh. we had changed teams a few times, and every time somebody lost, Austin was on that team. Uh, I think I think my brain so just spiderwebbed to so many different mm-hmm. ideas of, oh, that clue could connect to this, which could connect to this, which could connect to this. Yeah. And yeah. by that time, I'm way down the rabbit trail that they were never going down. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just not even close to uh, what they were trying to help me C on the board. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. I'm kind of like on the opposite of that, of that equation because there are tons of games that I'm not good at. Code names is one I can do probably because of words and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I tend to be with people like I'll go like way too obscure. Like I'm going to be like, I'm going to connect four cards here. And then I go into something super like deep and obscure. And my team's just like, nope, <laughs> we, we don't have it. Forget it. <laughs> so then we just do a fail. So. <laughs> all good but all right Kristen. or how about okay so that's kind of a both and for you Austin. a little bit okay that's good Kristen. how about you for me a game everybody should try is definitely code names okay <laughs> i love code names and i think that every person i've played it with i think it's always gone well not necessarily that people are doing a great job <laughs> <laughs> um but that but people are having a good time and um yeah, but it's always really fun to see, oh, these two people's brains, they've never met before, but their brains work really, really well mm. together because um, one of the people that came that night, that was the first time we'd ever interacted with him. Right. And he won two of the three times, you know? So um, I think that game is super fun. Kind of a both and also is this game called Mao, and um, it's a card game. And I think everybody should try it. <laughs> I think I think it's a fun Laura's game. I maybe should pass. say nobody uh-huh. should try it because it can cause lots of anger and conflict. Okay. Because at the beginning of the game, you say, there are three rules. I can only tell you these three rules. When you win, you make a new rule. And then you start playing. And so lots of people don't oh. like it. I love it. Okay. All right. But it makes people angry. So. And it's painful. Okay. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. But I mean, yeah. I also is. think code names can be painful depending on who you play it with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're playing with me, Um, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to give, like, time limits to the turns. Otherwise, some people will just, like, stare at the cards for hours. Yeah, Yeah, and then you're like, oh, this totally makes sense. (laughs) Or, like, that person, if they were on my team, they would get me. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, and then people get. (sighs) You're mad that people don't get you. (laughs) Well, not necessarily, yeah. Okay. uh, I think that, yeah, I would not play Code Names now Mm -hmm. that it's been brought up. (laughs) I mean, I will play it if everyone wants to play it, but. I think uh, Sushi Go is a fun party game. It's just, it's pretty low-key. It's not super crazy, but I think that one can be one that anyone can try and can make sense of it. Mm-hmm. It's a, Lisa's looking at me like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, um, I've but not played this game. Yeah, I could bring it in and okay. you can take it home and you can play with it. Play yeah. Okay, that sounds good. There's also some like fishbowl that those mm. were like, it's a couple different rounds, but people are getting up and there's different reasons and um some some of those rounds are like yeah you can only talk in this round or you can only do actions or you can only use one word and so i think sometimes those can be fun to bring people out mm-hmm. um and that there's different phases of it and you kind of see how people take different things that are in there so mm-hmm. that's a fun one that i think anyone could play that is good okay I guess I would say in addition to loaded questions, which I think everyone can play and it's super easy, um, I would also, I mean, I know people love this game or hate it, but I like the Beyond version of Balderdash. I think it kind mm. of provides a lot of opportunity for a different different types of questions and fun, and you have the opportunity to just straight up make stuff up, which some people like to do. It's, a, again, a good party game. Um, I would say I have I have given 
a good effort towards settlers. I do not want to ever <laughs> attempt that game again. Please do <laughs> not. Fair. Please do not bring it in my sphere at all. Um, and I also, weirdly enough, because I'm border, I mean, I'm extrovert, but borderline extrovert. I have a hard time with the fishbowl charades mm. kind of stuff. Mm. Okay. I'm just like, oh, here we are. Okay, we got to stand up and do this. And it, yeah, it just is weird. I don't know. I don't know why I think that game's weird, but whatever. So, well, it sounds like there is a lot of potential for game playing. I think we could all have fun with it in some context, but we got to make it happen. We have to have people who are willing to like go for it and host. And uh, so folks, I mean, we are like full on in fall here, heading towards the Thanksgiving Christmas season. So make a game night happen and maybe invite someone that you wouldn't normally invite. I think that could be a fun way to get to know someone and incorporate them into your circle. So thanks, you guys. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. London cab, her phone rings But I can tell the news is bad Before the first tear falls No one wants the sorrow A call like this brings Sorrow doesn't get the last word after all Well, folks, we're here for this week's culture segment, and we get to welcome back to the show David Marvin. David, welcome to The Boundless Show. Yes, excited to be back. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, For those of you who know or don't know, uh, David is actually, uh, he's from Texas. We're going to forgive him for that for right now. Uh. Um, But he is doing great things there. He is the Young Adults Director, uh, one of the teachers at the porch at Watermark Church in Dallas. And I have actually had the privilege of being down there. I always have great things to say about Watermark and about the porch and the team there that are so intentional about reaching out to you young adults, uh, not only the ones there locally that attend, but by making their resources available to you and others. Um, They are really pouring into a generation uh, of millennials as well as now Gen Z. And so we just love, love, love what you guys are doing there, David. Super great. Well, thank you. And and glad to be honored to be on here and love what you guys are doing. Uh, other than the fact that you don't like Texas and that's uh, the greatest state, you know, God ever created. You know, and, I, uh, I feel like <laughs> my poor listeners, because I'm always saying something weird about either the South or about, you know, all my Southern. It's a miracle that I have anyone from the South that listens. So I feel like uh, I don't say as many disparaging things about Texas as about the South. So be encouraged with that. I don't know. I love it. <laughs> it's weird. No, they're going to forgive me. In fact, I'm, I think I'm supposed to be going down to somewhere in the South coming up in the next few months. So I'm going to redeem it. It's going to be awesome. It's it's yeah, all good. You are. It's cool. Come on. Okay. So when you are not leading the porch and when you are not teaching there and when you are not doing all the other things that you do, in fact, I mean, pastoral stuff, you know, whatever, 
You are just writing stuff, um, including what we're going to talk about today, this week, as well as next week's show. We're doing a two-parter here. Uh, You have written a book titled, We're All Freaking Out and Why We Don't Need to, Finding Freedom from Your Anxious Thoughts and Feelings, which is a great topic. We were talking about this a little bit beforehand of just how mental health stuff is so important, uh, not only just in our culture, but generationally for for young adults right now that are the highest generation of burnout, uh, as well as uh, feeling uh, thoughts of isolation, especially coming off a pandemic and more. So I'm assuming you started working on this book before the pandemic, though, so it, it might be a little prophetic here. Yeah, you know, I started actually uh, began working with a publisher in 29, or having conversations, and then we um, decided to work with the publisher that Waterbrook Multnomah, who I went with, in early 2020, before the pandemic. And then two months later, everything shut down and the world changed um, to what it has been for the last 18 months. But yeah, so it was written out of an overflow of seeing the epidemic rates of anxiety, even prior to COVID, that were happening among young adults, that this generation in ages 18 to 34 are three times as likely suffer from anxiety disorders and depressive disorders often or depression often caused from anxiety disorders than the generation right behind it. And so we've seen that uptick at the porch, which is like you said, a ministry in Dallas tech. It's a weekly gathering of about 3000 here. And then we've got 15 satellite locations around the country that meet at other locations in nine different States. So there may be a portion of you, you can find out, but at the porch, all the time anxiety because we've seen the spike in the lives of young adults who are battling with anxiety. And so our heart uh, and the heart really of this book is to help connect the dots on the principles that God has given to experience peace and replace panic in your heart with God's peace. And so that's really the heart of the book and kind of the origin story, if you will. But yeah, like you said, it's as relevant now post-COVID as it ever has been. Yeah. Well, and I like the fact that uh, the book is actually, there's something for everyone. It's not, you know, we talk about mental health and anxiety and depression and and there are bona fide, I mean, that's a, you know, we talk about the bona fide psychological and physiological things about diagnoses around that. But there's also a fair amount in the book that's just for the average person who's like, you know what, maybe I don't have clinical depression or maybe I'm not, you know, anxiety isn't an actual like diagnosis I've received. But why am I just so worked up about everything? Why am I not trusting God? Why do I feel like my life's out of control? And I like that you weave a lot of application throughout the book uh, related to that as well. And one of the other things that I love about the book is that you use so many stories throughout the book, including telling on yourself um, a fair amount of times uh, about your own struggles in this area. And I kind of want to kick off here by you sharing the story of, of all things, your own honeymoon, where even there you couldn't get out of um, feeling uh, anxious and getting, quite frankly, a little bit weird. And uh, I need you to tell that story for us because I feel like it's going to be very comforting for the rest of us that feel like this could be us. Oh, my gosh. I'd love to. And, yes, it is it's such a, um, you know, it's a ridiculous moment. But like you said, I got married. I married my wife. And, you know, the day before we were going to leave for a honeymoon, I woke up and I was overwhelmed with anxiety. And I was going, why am I so anxious? It had nothing to do with did I marry the right person or did, you know, our 
hotels, something. It was all about the most ridiculous thing in hindsight, which was the honeymoon. That I, I, my sole contribution to you know the whole wedding planning process was to plan and basically execute on where we're going to go on a honeymoon. So I researched, went crazy, and finding, hey, this is going to be the top notch, this incredible resort, and found this boutique, quiet, secluded, these bungalows. And um, with very small numbers of people that were there and incredible service and away from any of the, you know, nightlife stuff, just kind of quiet for eight days. And it hit me that I realized I booked a vacation at basically my own worst nightmare. Like I'm an extra extrovert. I like to be where people are. I like to be around others. I don't even like massages. And it was, you know, massages on the beach and I don't relax well. And so I was like panicked going, what are we going to do for eight days? And so I went and bought books on, you know, the Barnes and Noble down the street. And I, in hindsight, I'm not even sure what I was thinking. Like, you know, I bought like 12 books on the trip mm-hmm. and then an international data. I just kind of did what you do when you panicked and you reach for something to give you a sense of control. And, uh, and I use that in the book to point out that in hindsight, it's comical and it's, it's kind of ridiculous because being so panicked about your honeymoon, and we had an amazing honeymoon. It was great. Um, but being panicked about that is, is so – it's comical how irrational it is. And I use that to segue into – but it's not just anxiety about a honeymoon that's irrational. Really, all anxiety is irrational. And by that, I don't mean to in- invalidate anyone. It's understandable. It's common. Anxiety is understandable. It's common. But it's not rational. In other words, it's not beneficial to sit and dwell on future potential problems or fears and things. It does nothing productive and beneficial about those future things. And so in general, anxiety is irrational. And so the problem is not that we you know, believe it really helps. We just don't know what not to do or we don't know how not to be anxious. And that's kind of where I segue into the book of you know, even understanding it's not helpful is not that helpful until we have an alternative of what do I do in those moments of anxiety strike, whether they're irrational or, or not, what do I do? And that's really where I, I take the rest of the book, honestly. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we, we alluded to the fact that generationally there seem to be some differences here. And, you know, I think it is true. Like, why in the world, like we would think objectively that any person who's young, who's starting out in the world, they should be so optimistic, so hopeful. I mean, maybe they finished college. Maybe they have all these dreams about what they want to do. Like, I feel like, you know, the, the rates of anxiety among 20 and 30 somethings is just unprecedented. And quite frankly, in comparison, I don't remember like my grandparents sitting around talking about all their anxieties. I mean, they just kind of like did life and whatever. So why do you see what is, what is making this generation of young adults in particular, those who are listening right here, what are they so anxious about? What's driving this? I think there's several factors involved. I think it would, uh, um, some of them being the rapid amount of change that has happened in their lifetime. I think it is uh, a season that is unique in their lifetime where so many decisions are being made. And I'll explain, unpack each of these really quick. And then I think that the um, fact that most people are walking through it alone plays a role. So what do I mean by change? There was a study done in 2010 that concluded that in the past 30 years, so from 1980, 2010, 
the world had changed as much as it had in the previous 300 combined. And that was in 2010. That's before iPads, before Amazon's Alexa, before Amazon Prime. That's before Netflix. It was anything other than, like, they mail you DVDs. That's before Uber. That's before Instagram. I mean, think how much has changed in the past 10 years. Hmm. And so all of that change can be stressful. And then you have the bombardment from social media where even though we're digitally connected, we are also connected to things that can feed comparison. And comparison is like a cousin of anxiety because when I compare and I go, look at their car, look at their life, look at their marriage, look at the fact that they have their kids and I'm single and I don't have a car like that and my job doesn't let me have vacations like that, it just contributes to like, oh, man, I'm not doing enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, which is anxiety. It's insecurity. And so I think that social media plays a role. The amount of change plays a role. I think this stage in life is a unique time where previous to young adulthood, all of the tracks on the train were kind of laid out for us, so to speak. In other words, previously, you finish first grade, you go to second grade. You finish second, you go to third. Finish you know, middle school, you go to high school. Finish high school, you either go to work or you go – into college, and then you go freshman year, sophomore year, eventually senior year, sometimes an extra senior year for good measure. And then it's like the train tracks run out, and you're in a free fall of where am I going to work? What am I supposed to do? Where am I going to live? Is this the person I'm supposed to marry? And there's no clear guide or clear instructions to walk alongside of you to make those decisions. And so I think the stage of life is unique in that so many you know, um, sociologists say that by age 35, 80% of the major life decisions that you make are going to be made, have been made. So I think all of that, having to make these big decisions is a big factor. And then lastly, I think that the marriage age, you know, 50 years ago, our grandparents were at least married walking through these hard navigating these times and making all these decisions. They at least have them. The average age of marriage, you know, in 1980 was 24 and 23. Today it's 30 and 29 and only getting higher. So young adults are not just walking through these pivotal years and walking through connected and feeding their anxiety. They're walking through it alone. And loneliness has a relationship to anxiousness and anxiety. And so I think all of those contribute. But where my passion point is particularly for Christians In the midst of all of that anxiety, there's a shortage of people turning to God's Word to find help and principles. In other words, when somebody is a Christian and they struggle with anxiety, they'll often be pushed to a counselor or they'll get medication, neither of which is bad. My wife is a licensed counselor, and I have personally benefited greatly from counseling. But for Christians, the first line of defense is not counseling. It's God's Word. Hmm. It's not medication. It's God's Word. Neither of those are bad things, but those are good supplements to the principles God has given us to lead us to peace. They're not good replacements. So that's what this whole book is about, is, in my experience further, one of the reasons they're often pushed to counseling or pushed to other things is they don't understand what the Bible actually teaches, or the Church is not actually accurately teaching. Here's what God's Word teaches about anxiety. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misinformation on what God actually says about anxiety and so that's really the heart, and I'm happy to, you know, explain even an example of that, but that's the heart behind this book is let me just connect the dots. Here's what God actually teaches, because it's way more helpful than maybe you think. Yeah. Well, it's true, because it's so uh, 
our proclivity, whether we're young adults or not, is to think that the solution is in fixing the problem or eradicating the problem rather than in yep. going to God and having him address the problem or releasing, you know, we're releasing the problem to him. We just think that there has to be a solution and it has to come from us. So we're going to go all around and look for all these solutions. And it's so fascinating. You mentioned just the progression of young adulthood and how many big decisions are there because, you know, in fact, we just talked about this at Boundless, the idea of like, you get into your 20s and you feel like you were promised all these things. Like if you just finish college, you know, then eventually you're going to get the American dream. You're going to buy a house. You're going to start a family. Well, now we have, you know, young adults that can't even afford to buy a house. They're getting priced out of markets. They're not finding spouses or, you know, whatever. And so it's kind of like they're coming up empty handed saying, uh, what happened here? Because did I go off script or what, you know, and, and so it is, it is true. I'm, I'm saying that to say, you guys, yeah. this is real. I mean, the the feelings around this are real. Um, you know, your feelings are validated here, but how do we surrender our feelings ultimately, as David is saying, to the Lord himself? Um, now, I yeah. would love, you referenced your wife, Kelly, and, and her being a professional counselor. You actually talk yeah. in the book about how you, um, uh, through her and through the work that she does, you kind of work through a process of, you know, counselors trying to get people to admit what they're really anxious about and working through kind of this uh, stage kind of thing about like, okay, what's the worst case scenario here? What's the worst case? Give us an example. I think you used an example of a guy named Kyle in the book who goes to see a counselor, because I think this is really helpful for us getting to the root of where things are sourced out of. Yeah. And I think, you know, counselors basically today, and this is something that I learned from my wife, but it's also something that I, um, I see Jesus doing in Matthew 6 when he is asking questions, much like a counselor to ask questions today, to help people chase down some of their anxieties and see what is really underneath them, what's fueling their anxious feelings and thoughts, and whether or not those are lies or truth that are in there. And so the example I use in the book, I believe, I use a couple of them, but one was about a counselor sitting down and discussing with somebody that he was really anxious about losing his job. Man, what if my company, they're downsizing and pandemic, and I'm anxious I could lose my job. And the counselor, they'll often walk through questions to help you kind of chase down what you're actually anxious about, because you can't fight what you haven't faced. And so the counselor would say, well, what happens if you lose your job? Kyle answers with, well, I'd have to find another job, or I won't be able to pay rent. And the counselor would then say, what happens if you can't afford to pay rent? Well, I'd have to move back in my with my parents. And then the counselor basically asked, well, what happens if you have to move back in with your parents? And now he's getting to the questions that help drive in because Kyle's response was, I would feel so embarrassed like I was a failure. And so on the surface, Kyle's like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. But what's fueling his fear is he's bought an idea that, oh, anybody who lives with their parents is a failure, which is not true. And that's a lie, but there's a lie underneath fueling that anxiety. And, uh, and I joke about how in, um, you know, life, the mall and shopping is just not my thing. I know a lot of people like it. My wife loves it. She would do it for, you know, just a break from kids anytime that she could. But I, I'm not a huge fan of going to the mall. And one of the reasons is I never know where the stores are when I have to go there. And so every time that I go, I park on the wrong side of the mall. And I go inside and I look for the last physical map in society. It's that big, um, you know, physical map that shows you where all the stores are. 
And on the map, I look for two things. I look for where is the store that I want to go to, and then where am I, that little star that says you are here? Because knowing where I want to be is only helpful if I know where I am. In other words, I can't get to where I want to be, that store, unless I know where I am. And in the same way, you can't get to a life marked by freedom from anxious thoughts and freedom from anxiety if you don't know and admit where you are. And so one thing I, I did learn from my wife and just from counseling is to really embrace your anxiety. We feel so much shame about the fact that I'm anxious. And I think in order to combat it, you need to say, man, I'm anxious about being single for the rest of my life. I'm anxious about the health of my parents. I'm anxious about whether or not this relationship is going to work. I'm anxious about if I'll be able to afford paying off student, like embrace it. And then you'll be able to face it. And so that, that's basically the thing that I work through as it relates to Kyle and also kind of why. Yeah. Well, and again, in looking at the solutions here, and I want to, I want you to go here before, uh, then we'll have to pick this up next week. But, you know, we're, we're talking about Jesus being the solution. I mean, he's the solution to our identity. He's the solution to whatever problem we're facing on a Tuesday, whatever. Give folks a little bit to latch on to, David, as to what, you know, you, you referenced isolation and the problems that that causes. How can a person who knows that stuff is spiraling out of control find Jesus as an individual in the moment when they're anxious? And how do they find him through community? Yeah, I think in the moment you're chasing down. Here's like a very practical equation that, again, I think comes right out of Jesus in Matthew chapter six, which maybe we'll have more time to talk about next week. You want to chase down those fears and then address them with the word of God or the promises of God. So that would be in the moment what I would do. So if somebody was talking to me and they said, I'm anxious about whatever it is, Anxiety plagues off of two words, a question that involves two words, what if? And that can look like, what if I lose my job? What if um, the cancer comes back? What if I am, you know, this relationship breaks up? What if? And I would encourage somebody, answer the what if. Like, chase it down. You can't, so often we are afraid to face and answer those questions, but it's only by answering them that some of the power is deflated and only by answering them that we can also then bring God's promises from the Word of God to address those things. So the most extreme example of this would be, what if we've got two kids and one on the way? What if, what if my wife, something happens to her, and she passed away, and I had to raise those kids by myself? That's a real fear and could create real anxiety. But if I decide I'm going to answer that what if, I hope that doesn't happen, but what if it did? Then I would walk through one of the hardest seasons in my life, probably the hardest season I would walk through. I would be so heartbroken. So what if, then I would, but God would be with me. God would sustain me. God has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. He's promised that he is near to the brokenhearted. He's promised that when I'm weak, he is strong. And so by answering the what if, I can address those and hold on. And it doesn't prevent bad things from happening. And it doesn't make, you know, that fear go entirely away. It isolates it, though, and allows us to hold on to what is true, that bad things could happen. But here's also what is true in the midst of that. So that would be how I would, on an individual basis, big fears, small fears, individuals walking through that to cling onto Jesus and his promises. And then in terms of community, I think you got to open up and you've got to have people in your life, a small group, um, other Christians, a Christian counselor, that you're honest with and that you talk about anxiety. Anxiety will have a death grip 
in isolation and in the dark. And even psychology affirms that when Paul talks about opening up and having authentic relationships and confessing both sin to one another and struggles to each other and talking honestly, even psychology today says there is a correlating effect on the physical symptoms of someone's anxiety when they begin to just talk about them. They experience less anxious symptoms physically, which just aligns with what the Bible says. Of you and I are created to have relationships with other people where we talk about what we're feeling, what's hard, what we're facing, and we open up. So that's how I would say you've got to have people in your life that if you're anxious, the worst thing you can do is not talk to anybody about it. And you've got to have relationships where you're opening up and saying, man, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm fearing and having people encourage you and come alongside of you. Yeah, so true. Okay, folks, well, we are going to continue this conversation next week. Meanwhile, I want you to know that this book that we've been talking uh, about by David, David Marvin, we're all freaking out and why we don't need to. Uh, We are making that available here at Boundless for a gift of any amount to Boundless. And you know we do this a lot with books that we really like. So uh, you just go to boundless.org. You can even search um, uh, under uh, 718. That's this week's show, this week's episode. Uh, You can search there. You'll see the book cover. Just click on it. Give a gift to Boundless of any amount. And then this will be our thank you gift to you. So you can make that happen today. Um, Stay tuned uh, with us next week. We are going to talk about, uh, David alluded to Matthew 6. If you're willing to join us, David, are you willing to come back? Oh, I'm in. All right. We'll do it. All right. See y'all next week. 24 hours rushing past I get caught up and I move too fast Another day is spent Working hard to keep my pace Trying to win the human race But somehow I forget That you're in control of all this mess You got the whole world In your hands got the whole your plans You've got the whole world in your hands Well folks, we're here for our inbox and this is where we answer your questions as listeners about any number of things. It could be relationships it could be um, mental health issues, it could be addiction, it could be just life kind of stuff and so we often like to bring in our professional counselors here at Focus on the Family and Boundless to answer these questions and today we have uh, counselor Jenny Coffey here. Hey Jenny. Hello. All right. well let me read the question and I'm going to let you take a stab at it. Our listener says I'm 23 years old and would like to date and pursue marriage. However, I struggle a lot with my mental health and don't know if I'm ready to be in a serious relationship. I want to figure myself out before getting too involved with a guy, but I don't think I'll ever feel 100% ready and that my emotions and mental health will be somewhat of a struggle for the rest of my life. I've been in counseling for a while and feel like I'm getting better. I don't want to waste my time dating before I'm emotionally ready, but I also know I can grow while in a relationship. How do I know when I'm ready to date someone seriously? Mm. Yeah. First of all, I really want to applaud this person's introspection and knowing kind of that there is a huge piece of knowing yourself individually before you enter in a serious relationship. It's interesting, though, because I'm thinking of a family member who also has kind of dealt with lifelong mental health stuff. And she's married now. 
and dated her now husband for a pretty long time. They kind of walked through a lot of life situations together. And I look at their relationship and see that he has always been super supportive. It's just he knows that this is a part of who she is. It doesn't make her who she is. I think that's a big piece that I would encourage this person about is the identity piece of the mental illness and saying, hey, this doesn't have to be something that you carry or something that you feel is constantly a part of who you are. But it does color and cloud sometimes the lenses that we view life with. And so it's a padded answer somewhat to say that the right person isn't, I don't want to say isn't going to care because it does play a part. It does have some factors to it. But the right person is going to know how to walk through that with you because it is a life journey. So saying that, you don't know if you'll ever be ready makes me think that this other person, whoever they would marry, it's like they're going to have stuff too. It doesn't mean it's going to be mental health, but maybe down the road there's something that you're going to have to walk through with them. And so don't let the mental illness piece limit you, but at the same time have some introspection in knowing where am I at, what growth do I need to happen, and coming into a relationship as healthy as possible. But it sounds like this person's pretty insightful in knowing this is what either I'm diagnosed with or this is what I struggle with and then seeking out counseling already and having that under their belt, so to speak, and in, in some insights and processing there. It sounds like it's a matter of them maybe boosting their confidence and feeling like I can dip my toe in the water. I can see what's out there and not be limited by, you know, quote, mental illness or whatever it is that's going on for them. Yeah. Now, would you say, Jenny, like the seriousness of a relationship or how, you know, far to go into a relationship, like when do they introduce the fact to their date that like, you know, yeah, this is a struggle of mine. And again, you know, it's a two way street. They're going to have to see how that person responds. But what's a maybe a timing and approach way to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, isn't that always the big question? Like the first date, (laughs) second date, throwing all Mm -hmm. of your stuff at the other person, like I'm interested in marriage, you know, let me throw everything at you and you don't want to do that. But my hope would be that it somewhat is able to come up organically. Hmm. Um, something that's in a conversation you'd say, yeah, you know, I just have to make sure that I keep my exercise routine because it just keeps me healthy. It keeps me in a mentally good place, like kind of alluding to it along the way without diving into, by the way, I have a bipolar diagnosis or whatever it would be, mm-hmm. kind of alluding to the habits that they might have that keep their mental health in check, like we all need to have, mm-hmm. regardless of if we have an, a, something diagnosable. Yeah. But alluding to it along the way, I think could help set the stage so that it doesn't feel like, depending on the seriousness potentially of what the diagnosis could be, that it doesn't feel like this huge bomb that's being dropped at a time. It just feels like something that's continuing a story that's already been started. Yeah, good point. Well, remember, folks, um, that we have a team of counselors here at Focus on the Family that you can access for a complimentary consultation, and maybe they can set you on their way with some resources or even an ongoing referral right in your area. Uh, You can find them by calling one 800 a family. That's 1-800-THE-LETTER-A and the word family. And uh, just ask to speak to a counselor. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. Uh, We love it when, in fact, we've heard from a few of you recently who have said that you've left us a review over on Apple Podcasts. And we love it when you do that because that is how other people find our show. So if you said hey, I am hearing this show. I love keeping up with it. And I think it would benefit a lot of people. Um, Then maybe they will give it a chance. So if you'll hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, we would super appreciate it. That is it for this week's show. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family.